I want to talk today about God's, uh, God's highest gift to us, which is the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, just, I want to actually read several scriptures so, to involve you in this. Uh, if we go to John chapter 7 for starters, we're going to work our way through a bit of John. Some of these scriptures you'd be familiar with, but John 7:37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, "If anyone is thirsty, <coughs> excuse me, let him come to me and drink." I want to tell you, there's a huge thirst in our nation, in the Christians and in the non-Christians. There's a desire, there's an absolute hunger for authenticity. I, I believe when we start to, as we start to enjoy and display the kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit and release healing and deliverance as we see it in Scripture. The world is absolutely starving for that kind of reality. Everybody's hungry. There's incredible hunger for that kind of reality out there. It says, if anyone's hungry, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit who... <coughs> whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. I just want to... The point at which the Spirit is given is not the point at which you're ready or you ask. The point at which the Spirit was given was when Jesus was glorified, which is when he rose again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. At that point, the Holy Spirit was released. So the release of the Spirit to us is not dependent on us, it's dependent on Him, and it's already done. So we have a lot of confidence in knowing that the Holy Spirit is being sent and has been sent to us without us doing, jumping through any particular hoops. He did the hoop jumping. That's the point of the Scripture, is that the, His death and resurrection was the hoop jumping necessary for the Spirit to be released to every single person, I believe, on the planet. You could never earn the Spirit. You could never get good enough by your own works. You could never clean yourself up. It's only the blood of Jesus just shed for us on the cross that makes us pure enough by a gift that the Spirit of God could be with us and in us. Some of you are not looking that convinced. This is a free gift, all right? You get Holy Spirit because of what He did, not because of what you do. Okay. Turn over with me to John 14. <clears throat> going to go to verse 15. It says, If you love me, you, uh, uh, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father and will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, this is interesting, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, because, <clears throat> but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And then John 16. Just going to do 5 and 8. Now, I'm <clears throat> now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. This is Jesus saying it. It is for your good that I'm going away. 
If I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Amazing. It was better that he went. Just turn me to Acts chapter 2. That's still puzzling to most of us now. How could it be better to have a spirit than a physical Jesus? We'll come back to that in a minute. Then Acts 2.42. Right, this is the fulfillment of all those promises. So they're ready. They've been told they're going to receive the spirit. They're told that the spirit coming is better than having Jesus there himself. They're told as soon as he's ascended and he's resurrected and ascended that the Spirit is going to be poured out and then it's going to flow out of them like rivers of living water. And then Jesus tells them, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, until you receive the Holy Spirit. So here they are, they're they're primed, they're prepared, but they don't have a clue what this is going to be like. And I've searched the Scriptures and there is no little bit in Scripture in the Old Testament that says, when the Spirit comes, it will look like what it looked like. There's no like little boxes they could tick. Like when he comes, it's going to be like this, this, and this. So here they are. They're poised. They know he's coming. But what's that going to be? What's that going to look like? What's it going to feel like? And here they are. They're praying in an upper room. And here it comes. All right, it's easier for us because we've read the story before. But just try and put yourself in their position where they have no idea. They just have a promise that he's coming. So here we are, we're in our upper room, we're praying, and all of a sudden, the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Well, I don't like noises. Some people would start to exclude themselves because it was too noisy. I'm just, just, not in this room, but there are people like that, aren't there? It came from heaven and filled the whole house, so... It's not the wind that filled the house. It's the noise. All right, it's the sound like, just saying. So it's pretty noisy. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, all these God-fearing people from all these places and they were bewildered because they heard each of them speaking in their own languages. And they, and they said, are these men not Galileans? And, and on you go, and, and it gives a whole list of all the different places where they came from. <coughs> and it says in verse 12 that they were amazed and perplexed. And they said to one another, what does this mean? And some, though, made fun of them and said, they're drunk. They've had too much wine. And Peter stands up, verse 14, and with, raises his voice and addresses the crowd. And he basically tells them, this is the beginning of the last days. This is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel has said. Wow! How did they know? How, how did they know that this was it? They called it. They recognized it. They, they recognized that all this noise, all this weirdness, Yeah? Oh, come on. If there was suddenly the sound, like a big whooshing noise in this room, would, would we all immediately assume it was God? Some of us would be checking the heating and hoping it was the heating. 
Some of us may be checking if there are any you know, unreported low-flying jet aircraft in the region at 12.02 on Sunday morning. Yeah? Just, just, just saying. And then there's, then there's fire appears on their heads. Now, some of us would think immediately it was God. Some of us may think it's weird. And some of us may think, I wonder if there's some strange atmospheric conditions that are refracting light weird in the room. I mean, these are funny bulbs, aren't they? And, you know, the weather's been a bit odd. And just saying... And then, then there's, there's drunken behavior. Some leaders would then interview every person in the room about their, their alcohol habits before church. And then there's the whole speaking in other languages. Some of us would want to, you know, come on, get, I want you to get out your hires certificates and your standard grades if some of you, you know, did, did you do French? Well, I did, but I can't speak it. But Sometimes our reaction to phenomena is to try and check it out in the natural. Yeah? This is the most precious moment in history. And I know some churches, if this happened, some people wouldn't come back the next week because it was weird. It was too drunken, it was too noisy, it was too unexplainable. Are you with me? Or if it happened, they would be fearful. But what's amazing is, there's, there's many things that I think Jesus didn't teach the disciples, but they stood as one man, and they were ready, and they could discern that in all this noise, all this strange manifestation, they knew this was Holy Spirit. They'd been trained by Jesus to detect God, however He came. And, and all through the history of revivals and through Bible history, when God comes, something weird usually happens. And I think some of it is that He is displaying His greatness. So the next time they need a prayer meeting like this, it doesn't happen like this, but the whole house shakes. But again, they're not, they're not phased. They're not out there with the architect and the structural engineer checking out and, and you know, reading the charts for any recent volcanic or, uh, what's the other word I'm looking for, seismic activity they're just like well they're calling it what it is the Holy Spirit showed up he shook our building today just because he can he he came like the sound of a wind last week well I don't know what he's going to do next time but we know it we know it's him and we're not we can see past the phenomena it doesn't trigger us to withdraw or move us into fear, we can detect God however He's choosing to show up. Yeah? And that's something that as churches in this nation, I believe we need to get better at. That we're not all reacting to what He's doing. Like, ooh, somebody fell over. Ooh, ooh, God came and it was noisy. Ooh, ooh, I don't like it when that happens. Hold on a minute. Whether you like it or not is not the most important thing. Is it God is the most important thing? And, and uh, are you and I able to discern when it is God? And I think one of the achievements of Jesus' ministry was he ended up with 120 people in an upper room who all together could go, this is weird and we don't understand it, but this is God. And we're going to recognize it and we're going to receive it and we're going to run with the Holy Spirit when he comes. That, that's an incredible achievement. 
And uh, <laughs> how are you doing? You see, Jesus, Jesus said in the passage we read that in, in John 12 that when the Spirit was sent to, he sent the Holy Spirit to them, yeah? He would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, yeah? Who was the Spirit sent to? Who was the Spirit sent? I mean, it's not a trick question, it's in the text. Come on, you'll stay warmer the more you talk. Just, who is the Spirit sent to? Peep them. He, said, I'm send the, he actually says, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. Who gets convicted? Them. That doesn't make sense. But it actually makes a lot of sense from a spiritual point of view. And that's exactly what happens here in Acts 2. Holy Spirit lands on 120 3,000 people get converted. Who did the Spirit come to? The 120. Who got saved? The 3,000 out there. And probably a lot of those 3,000 was the same group that not long before had been saying, crucify him. The whole kind of atmosphere and attitude of a city shifted because 120 people were like, we can receive the Holy Spirit however he comes. I'd like to suggest to you that our receptivity, our ability to receive and recognize the Holy Spirit and let Him invade us is crucial for the salvation of our city. I believe God's looking for people and churches to land on with power to change the atmosphere of Glasgow so that thousands can get saved. And we've seen it happen in little measure. We've seen some of us who just kind of learning to host His presence and then leading someone to Christ. We've seen it in other revivals. You know, Wigglesworth, there's famous stories of him going to the loo on the train and then coming back and sitting in the carriage. And just the guy across from him he's never spoken to says, you know, it's a bit old school now, so and then back in the 1930s or something, and he says, sir, you convict me of sin. And he never said a thing to him. Why? Because he's a man carrying the presence. He's learned to be invaded by the Holy Spirit and receive the Holy Spirit however he wants to come. They managed to receive the Holy Spirit unquestioning, ding, ding. <laughs> unquestioning, dingily. <laughs> All right, so how did, how did Jesus do this? I'm not going to do any more of that section. It's not making any sense. <laughs> how? See, Jesus said, look, it's better that I go because I'm going to send him. I'm going to send you a spirit. Now, for lots of us who've grown up the way I was grown up, I was, grown, I was taught to be a materialist and a rationalist. So a materi- I'm a, I've been trained to be materialist. That doesn't just mean that I like buying new cars and earning lots of money. A materialism is the, is the philosophy that says that this... this what I can see and feel and measure and touch and taste, this solid stuff here, this is reality. You know, this, this is reality and this is the ultimate reality. That's materialism. And then rationalism is to do with, is to do with everything I can understand and explain. It's, it's linked to materialism. So I've been raised to be a materialist and a rationalist. If I, can't, if it's not, if I can't measure it, taste it, see it, it's suspicious. And if I can't understand it, 
it doesn't really count. All right? On those two levels, if, it, if, I, if it's not measurable and it's not comprehensible, then both of those put a big question mark over what I'm experiencing. And if both of those things are true about something that's happening to me, then I have two big fat question marks and I really am very suspicious of the supernatural. And that isn't because I've been raised a good Christian. That's what we do then is we can import our materialism and our rationalism into our Christianity and think if I don't understand it and it doesn't make sense, then it isn't God. No, it just means it doesn't fit my materialistic, rationalistic mindset. Am I making sense here? So it's a danger that we import what we grew up with because that's what we feel safe with and we make Christianity materialistic and rationalistic. Whereas two... And and this isn't just a modern idea. So if you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees were quite naturalistic. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't really believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in resurrection and life after death. The Pharisees did. And because we're human, because we have senses, we do tend to rely on them without the help of the Spirit. And so the disciples got scared like we we get scared. I'll show you in a minute. But to such a group of people as us, materialists, rationalists, Jesus says the best thing I can give you, it's even better than, one of the reasons we think, how can it be better to have a spirit than it is to have a physical person? How can that be better? Well, that's because Jesus' worldview, his way of understanding and looking at the whole of life is not the same as a materialist or a rationalist. He says the best thing I can give to you in 2014 in Glasgow is a spirit. The best possible thing in all of creation, in all that is to be had, the best thing you can have is spirit. And for all of us, it's like, well, I can't see spirit. I can't taste spirit. I can't measure spirit. What good's that to me? Well, that's because you're applying a materialistic or rationalistic mindset to the promise. Spirit is better than anything we could measure or understand. He's sending a spirit. It was the best thing he could give. And he knew they needed to learn how to be receptive to Holy Spirit. Because he said to them, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And his solution to them not being left as orphans was that he said, I would send you spirit. And he's like, Huh? But, but this is something the church has been really bad at. An orphan isn't someone who lacks biological parents. Everybody who's born on the planet has a mom and a dad somewhere. Two people who've supplied enough DNA to make a you. All right? Whether it, however it happened, whether it was a moment of passion or these days a test tube, somebody somewhere gave the dad bit and somebody gave the mom bit, all right? An orphan doesn't lack biological parents. What an orphan lacks is the presence of parents. Yeah, it's the absence of presence equals orphan. And so to make church about knowledge and not about presence is to produce orphan believers. Because Jesus said, I won't leave you orphans, I'll send you. We read it. He'll send you 
another comforter, another counselor, I'll send you the Spirit. So you can have a revelation of the Father heart message. You can have an encounter with the love of God. But I tell you what, if you go for a year without having an experience of his presence, you're going to end up feeling like an orphan. Because it's not the knowledge that God's your dad that is going to change the way you feel about you and him. It's the experience of him showing up and being your dad every day that is going to change the way you feel about you and him. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what changes church and Christianity from being this slightly lonely, orphaned experience isn't just a revelation of God as Father. It's the experience of Spirit every day. It's the presence of the presence. Is this making sense? Someone is an orphan because their parent isn't present. Not because they don't have a biological par- parents. So for church to be family, we constantly need to be invaded and experiencing the Holy Spirit so that we feel like we're family. And that's what, what Paul actually says, that the Spirit is given and he cries out in us, Abba, Father. It's the Holy Spirit's function to keep us knowing that we're family. So it was really important that he taught the disciples to recognize the Holy Spirit so that when he showed up, they knew it was him and they wouldn't feel like orphans on the planet. So he didn't release them with a lot of information. I would have been excited when Jesus rose from the dead. Would you have not? I would have been petrified when they crucified him and out of my skin with excitement when he rose from the dead. Yeah, and he walks through a wall and there's... And I'm like... I was right all along to follow you. Let's go tell the world. And then he does the whole disappearing trick, you know, he goes up on a cloud. I'm like, we have joined the right group. It's time to tell everybody Jesus is alive and he's forgiven our sins. This is the most remarkable thing. I mean, he even went up to heaven on a cloud. Let's go tell folks. And he says, shh, shh, shh. calm down, Andy, calm down, calm down. Don't do anything and don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit's come. Because good information and even good experiences with me is not enough for you to be ready to go do what I've called you to do. You don't need a good knowledge of the cross and the resurrection. You need a Holy Spirit. So wait till you get him. This is really important to Jesus. Just because it's a realm that we perhaps have not been naturally comfy with or used to, doesn't mean it's, it's a realm that we shouldn't become comfy with and used to. And I believe one of the things he's doing is trying to train us to be comfortable with Holy Spirit. To be able to recognize him when he comes, receive him when he comes, and run with him. You happy? From his perspective, in his value system, the highest gift he could give you is his spirit. What has always puzzled me, and I'm beginning to understand this, is why did Jesus write nothing down? He was around long enough. And, and the archaeologists and those that do the research and that, that pulled all the original documents together for the Bible and the New Testament, if there was a scrap with a, you know, signed off, I love you, Jesus, if there was a, if there was a papyrus or a document in a cave, somebody would have found it. And they would have stuck it in the Bible, which is, this is an original bit of writing by Jesus Christ. How, surely, Jesus, you would do that. There you are, you've got three and a half years. What are you doing with all your time? 
get a papyrus out. Write us some stuff down. Or whatever they wrote on a scroll or a... The only thing I remember him writing was he wrote in the sand. That's no good. That would be blown away long ago. And nobody knows what he actually wrote either. (laughs) This is the world-changing teacher. He wrote nothing down. See, from our perspective, that would have been a smart thing to do. If you're going to change the world, write a book. Get your ideas out there. Remember, the pen is more powerful than the sword, Jesus. He said, well, I might leave that to others, which is kind of what he did. He didn't leave us teachings, but he left us a teacher. He didn't leave us a guidebook, he left us a guide. He didn't leave us helpful principles, he left us the helper. He didn't leave us love letters, he left us the lover. I don't, this could be tweeted completely out of context. I'm preaching the Bible to you, thank God for the Bible. But this was not the first thing in his mind when he said, what shall I leave my followers? He said, I'm going to send them a person, not leave them a teaching can't make any sense of the book without the person who authored the book. And too many people have elevated the scripture above the spirit who are on the submitted the scripture to the spirit. Well, we want to be word and spirit. No, you need to be spirit and the word will flow from it. It's not a balancing act. This has to be interpreted by the author. And the author through the 66, whatever his authors was the Holy Spirit. Am I making sense? We've not come to worship a book. We've come to commune with a person. Not a teaching, but a teacher. Not a guidebook, but a guide. Not helpful principles, but a helper. Not love letters, but a lover. That's who he sent. And the other thing he knew (coughs) was when we all got born again, that we would get our factory settings reset. So the, the original design human being was, was designed for a minimum of a daily encounter with the face of God. Think about it, in the garden, there's the original human being and every day is having an encounter with God, a personal face-to-face, close Yeah? When you strip away all the sin and stuff, basically, when you reset you to factory settings, which is what happens when you get born again, you're designed for a daily encounter with the Father. But you're made for that. It's not like something you have to work up to. You're designed for it. And he also knew when you got born again, you didn't just get reset, you got an upgrade. It says that Adam was a living soul and Jesus was a life-giving spirit. It's, it's what he's trying to say is you've got an upgrade. So people, people who are born again actually have two, it's like dual citizenship. It's like carrying two passports. You've got an earth passport and a heaven passport. And somehow or other you live in both places at the same time. So you're completely designed to connect to and have face-to-face relationship with God. So it's a lie 
some people believe that, well, there are some believers that are more sensitive to God than others. Everybody's designed to be sensitive to God. In a, it, the way they're sensitive is going to be different, but nobody is designed better than someone else. Everybody's designed for his presence. Try and land this quickly because it's chilly. How are you doing? Do you need to stand up? Give somebody a hug, for goodness sake. Stand up, give someone a hug. Someone you're friendly with so you can get more heat. <laughs> I'll have one too. It's getting cold here. <laughs> oh, man, this is awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it's a lie. It's a lie that you are not sensitive to Holy Spirit. That's a lie. You're designed for Holy Spirit. You're designed for the Father. You're designed to know the presence of God. So how did how did Jesus get this bunch of tax collectors and fishermen and ex-religious zealots, how did he get them ready to recognize, receive, and run with Holy Spirit? What did he do? Yeah? What was, I believe this was the major project of his life, apart from going to the cross, was to prepare 120 people who could recognize Holy Spirit and receive Holy Spirit when he showed up. And I believe it's something God's renewing in the church. We're not here to know a lot. We're here to receive a lot. All right, and we've been good at doing it the other way around. So some of the things I think the disciples should know, they do not know. They don't. It's clear from the, the book of Acts that the disciples do not understand law and grace. They do not understand the kingdom. And they don't understand why the Gentiles should be let in. I mean, they have some serious issues that Jesus either hasn't taught them, or if he has, they didn't get it, which is, as any teacher knows, is somewhat your fault. <coughs> Yeah, because you're responsible for how well you're communicating. So the fact is, he's releasing on the planet 120 people who don't have a scooby about theology I think is important. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus, what have you been doing for three and a half years? What have you been teaching them? Well, I'll tell you what he's been teaching them. He's been teaching them to re- recognize Holy Spirit when he comes. Because he knows he doesn't need to fill them with teaching. He needs to enable them to connect with the teacher. It doesn't need to give them the directions. He needs to give them the guide. And the key thing is being able to recognize him when he shows up. So how does he do it? Well, we read, we read one of the things. He said, <clears throat> I'm going to send you the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who the world can't receive because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him. As he's, saying, he's speaking to them. He's saying, you know him because he dwells with you and he will be in you. So you're like, oh. So just think, just think, imagine for a moment you're one of the 12 disciples, you're hanging out with Jesus, and he's saying to you, this Holy Spirit is going to come and invade you. You already know him because he's, he's with you. And, and he's assuming they, they get that. Yeah? So some, let, let me put it this way. He's not in them. 
but he's somehow around them. He's kind of in the atmosphere. Yeah? Why, why would that be? Yeah, it's the classic Sunday school answer. <laughs> who was the... Who, it says Jesus had the Spirit without measure. There's times when it says that the power of God was coming out from him and healing them all. He said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It says that the Holy Spirit came and rested on him like a dove. He stood up and said, the Spirit of God is on me because he's anointed me too. If you hang around with Jesus, there's enough Holy Spirit hanging around him for you to sense the Holy Spirit. What, you could, what was in the atmosphere around Jesus? Now, not everybody plugged into it, but it was there to plug into. If you, so the woman with the issue of blood touched him. She connected to what he was carrying. And these guys who were hanging around him every day were like, ooh, yeah, we know Holy Spirit. He's in the atmosphere around you. So what you're saying is what we feel around you and what we see you do and move in is going to jump down inside of us one day. You say, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. So sometimes for some of us who feel a little bit awkward in this or a bit unschooled or a bit, just hang around people who do. Get to know people who host the presence and suddenly you'll find you sense him because you are designed to sense him. But hanging around people or hanging around in worship services, hanging around in worship is a great way to get to know the what the presence feels like. Because what we need to do is get past our reaction to phenomena. All right? So when something, quotes weird kicks off like the house shakes or fire lands on your head, what you don't want to do is go, oh, there's fire on my head. Oh, there's fire on my head. It's like, no, I can feel the Holy Spirit. So I've sometimes wondered, what? God, God, why do you send all these phenomena? Well, some of it is he's just because he can't. Some of it is to help us know that he really is here. But some of it is also an element of test. So if you remember when Elisha is following Elijah, and he said, well, you can get the double portion if you see me when I'm taken from you. Yeah? Remember that story? Well, there's two things happen. There's a whirlwind, and there's a chariot of fire and horses of fire. Which, which uh, okay, I want to have a vote. Who thinks that it was the chariot of fire and horses of fire that took Elijah up? And who thinks it was the whirlwind? Can we have a vote for chariots of fire and horses of fire? They're both in the text. Who thinks it was the chariots of fire and horses of fire that took Elijah up? Okay, yeah, come on, be bold. They're both in the text. So there's a few who are on the horses and chariots. Okay, great. Yeah, well, if, I mean, if I want to go, I want to go in chariots and horses of fire, eh? That's the, come on. Who thinks it was that? I'm, I'm up for a bit. Certainly today. Okay, a few. Who thinks he went up in the whirlwind? A lot of people are in the... I'm not committing myself this morning. I don't want to look like a nana because only one of these is right. <clears throat> he actually went up in the whirlwind. But there was a chariot of fire and horses of fire that came between them. Which is pretty dazzling. I, I, of the two, I, I, you know, if I, I would be more, more, uh, I don't know, entranced by, fascinated by that than the whirlwind. Yeah. But there's a test. Because yeah. Eli, 
sure has to keep his eyes on Elijah and not get distracted by the horses and chariots. I'm going somewhere with this. The phenomena is not the focus. Either in the positive or the negative. So for some of us, we've got to get past the, it's a phenomena, to, ah, it's Holy Spirit. And maybe for others, it's like, I want the phenomena and forget the Holy Spirit. Neither of those is healthy. Well, you know, I haven't, I haven't, for a while. Well, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Oh, I feel better now. I've had a bit of this. Well, I haven't ooed and aahed very much. But, Paul, I mean, that still happens to me. Hallelujah. I love it. But the thing I love the most is his presence. So these things can get in the way, either introduce fear that is unnecessary or fascination, which is a distraction. The fact is when God comes, phenomena happen. And I really want to welcome, however that is, whether it's glory clad, shaking, falling, houses shaking, fire on our heads. I want him to show off and reveal his glory any way he wants. But we're going after him and recognizing his presence we're not either being put off by the phenomena or pursuing the phenomena. Are you, do, do you see what I'm saying? So great that there were horses and chariots of fire, but the thing was, keep your eye on Elijah. Hopefully that's making sense to you. So I don't want to squash any phenomena. I love it when God breaks out and it looks crazy. <laughs> Personally. Good moment. I get, <laughs> it was so fun. <laughs> Let's just have a bit of electrocution. <laughs> I was speaking. Uh, I got to speak to these leaders, which is a, which is a real, real privilege. The three hundred or so leaders, and it was so fun. I said to you, you know, God showed up before I'd finished. And it's great. It just starts breaking in and people start laughing and falling off their chairs. And yeah. I think you could just take over at any time. Yeah. But that's not our focus. Yeah. And neither should it be the thing that puts, makes us back off. Yeah. The issue is, are you ready to recognize, receive, and run with Holy Spirit? Yeah. However he comes. The fact is that every revival has been accompanied by craziness. In our, you know, what we would call strange things. God showing up and you know some people totally rejected the revival in South Wales because they went in the door and saw <coughs> miners with their boots on dancing on the pews and crying and then there was no preaching there was mostly weeping and laughter and that put people off they didn't think it was God they wrote in the press that this is not a real revival but a hundred thousand people got saved <coughs> the stories from the Hebrides revival where in a room it said it looked like cannon fire had gone off so I guess a room like this people are sitting in their pews or chairs and, and the Holy Spirit comes up and it, and it describes a scene where people are kind of knocked off their chairs onto the floor some have got their, sort of, their arms are knocked back and their heads are thrown over the back of the seats it's just as if you know explosions had happened in the room and people are just like and people fell into hedges and got saved you know and who wants the hedge falling anointing in the room here just sort of 
<coughs> I think it was the Cane Ridge Revival in the States, which, which actually probably was connected to the Canvas Lang thing that happened here in 1730-odd. There was a connection. But Cane Ridge, the women had long hair with combs in, and, uh, and their heads flicked really violently, so all the combs came out. The, I mean, just, just kind of crazy stuff like that. The, the, the original account, I think I've told you this before, the original accounts of, of Booth and the Salvation Army, it's actually the original documenters of what happened in, with them is they had levitation and they had racks to put people in. And, and they went all around the world, so incredible things, incredible numbers saved. So you, did any, I mean, any one of us could sit here going, oh, I wouldn't like that to happen to me. Listen, let's, let's learn to recognize Holy Spirit when it comes. And if any or all of those things happen and it's Him, we're up for it. Yeah? None of us have decided to leave the church because Bill Bloggs levitated on Sunday. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? And oh, I can't see that in the Bible. How did Jesus walk on water? Go figure. I mean, just, I'm just saying, okay? <sighs> get, get off that one quick. Here we go. <laughs> so the other thing he did, so he exposed them to him and the presence on him, and they learned to detect what the presence, so they could detect with their inner detector, which we all have, what is presence of God. And the other thing he did was he, he trained them by scaring them to death. At first, I didn't think I could prove this, but I think I can biblically prove this, that, that Jesus actually scared the fear out of them. Oh, I don't like the Bible you're reading. I'm just reading the same one you're reading. Let me, for example, all right, and we'll, we'll try and end. You okay? <clears throat> Matthew 14. So the disciples are, are rowing. Across the Sea of Galilee. It's 14 miles long, 8 miles, 7, 8 miles wide. I think in the John 6 account it says they were 3 miles across. But the wind was contrary and it was against them. They've been doing that it's a long time. Jesus has been having a bit of father time and decides, you know what? I'm going to walk across. <laughs> so he starts strolling across a rough sea or a lake and... <coughs> The disciples see him from afar. And this is Jesus. They're hanging around with him every day. And he's walking across the water. And their initial response, the scripture records that they were terrified. And they go, ah, it's a ghost. <laughs> they said, it says they cried out in fear. That was just my version. They cried out in fear. Ah, it's a ghost. So they thought it was supernatural, but they assigned it to the wrong kind of supernatural. Yeah? And Jesus, Jesus is kind of walking up to them, and he says to them, take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. <laughs> then he gets in the boat, and, and the John account, it says, and suddenly they were at the other side. So they suddenly covered, like, six to seven miles in a moment and Jesus get in the boat. So, so weird stuff happened around them all the time. Ah, it's a ghost. We've been pulling on these oars and we just banged up against the... 
crashed into the jetty. I thought we had another seven miles to go, everyone. Come on, this is in the text. This is in the Bible. Do you read the Bible? I recommend you read the Bible. It's full of amazingly crazy stuff. I have a theory that, you know, when they get out, another, it's another sea crossing, and then they face the Gadarene, and he comes out of the tombs, and he's breaking chains. I don't know if he did it with his teeth, or he just kind of went, I think the Gadarene only saw one person, Jesus. And all the disciples were lined up behind him. Because the text says that this guy is coming out of the tombs and he's breaking chains and he's probably naked. All right? And he's coming at Jesus. And I'm with Jesus. Where are you going to be? I'm going to be, well, if he wants to talk to you, fine. I'm behind you. I mean, let's be honest, the amount of fear rising up inside of you is going to be significant, isn't it? You're going to be fighting hard to keep all your bodily fluids where they should be. You know, as this guy's breaking a chain and he's naked and he's coming up to Jesus and you're like, ah! What do we do joining with this crowd? This was Jesus' discipleship program. It's a ghost. Oh, crunch. We've hit the other side. How did that happen? Ah, it's a demonized man. I mean, you've got to have a strong constitution to hang out with Jesus, haven't you? (laughs) By the time they were through all of that, and and then there were the weird sermons as well. I mean, he put them through absolute mangle, didn't he? The weird sermons like big crowds. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have nothing of me. And they're all looking at each other. Where did he get that text from? But you know what? They were so hungry for life that they hung in through the fear and confusion. How hungry for life are we? I just said, basically they said to him, We haven't a clue what you just said, but we know you've got the words of life. We're hanging on. And everybody left. See, the most important thing that's switched on inside of us is a presence of God detector, not our error-mometer. You you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to examine the Scripture, etc. But it's really, really important that we have our senses trained to detect what's God. And we let that happen first before we filter it through all other sort of reasons. And so Jesus basically scared fear out of them. I think it's really important, if, again, if you're concerned about supernatural stuff and you find it worrying, is hang out with people who scare you. <laughs> because after a little bit, you get as crazy as them. So our natural inclination is to recoil from people who do things that scare us, yeah? These guys, because there was life in it, they hung in. They clung on to this whole process with Jesus of people, I mean, doing mad things like digging a roof up to be in the meeting. I mean, the the list of mad things people did around Jesus is long. And you keep saying, yeah, I'm with him. Yeah, I'm with him. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with him. 
to find some people that scare you in the spirit and hang out with them. And you know what? After a bit, you, you aren't afraid anymore. I remember talking to, I think it was Kevin Dedmore, it might have been. Uh, it was either Kevin or, or Joaquin and Ahab when they were here. And they're just chatting like, yeah, yeah. I mean, healing the sick is Christian recreation for us. In fact, sometimes we sat down on a day off and said, let's go to the ER room and pray for the sick. And I'm like, ah! on the inside, I'm like, it's not going to happen on my day off. <laughs> that would scare me, just walking into the accident and emergency and announcing, anybody here sick, we're going to heal you. Uh, for where I'm at, that's scary, yeah? But I'm quite enjoying hanging around people for whom it's not scary. Because bit by bit, it's getting less scary of an idea to me. So, Jan McFarlane, I've told this story before, we went out doing a treasure hunt one day, this is a couple of years ago, and we're like, we really want to pray for the sick on the streets, we're walking around, we had a few clues, we had a a colour of a coat, didn't we, and we had a a place, and and, and we we talked to a, a, a guy who was just needed a bit of chat that Jan knew. And then we're like, oh, we really want to pray for the sick. So we saw a guy in the place with the right color coat on, with crutches. And both of us were like, yay, there's our man. So we walk up to him. And as we're walking, I see that he only has one leg. <coughs> like literally nothing from there down. And, and we're walking together up to him. And I'm like, <sighs> you know, leader, pastor, God's man of faith and power. Whoa. I've moved from, this is exciting, to I am scared of this. <laughs> and having a little chat with Jan, like, well, I'm not sure this is going to happen. She's like, well, how are we ever going to see it happen if we don't pray for people with no legs? I mean, that's a scary moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I could actually, thinking about it, I could have played the like pastor card. Well, no, but I think she would have done it anyway. But I didn't have to do it with her. But I did. We, we went and we prayed. Nothing happened, but we, one day it will. Yeah. And actually, I have more courage for doing that kind of thing. Hang out with people who scare you. That was Je- so I believe these are two basic training methods of Jesus. Exposing them to presence and getting them around the supernatural, even when it was scary to them, in order to prepare them to recognize and receive and run with the Holy Spirit when he came. 